Back in the fall of 2015, ads for fantasy sports sites like FanDuel and DraftKings seemed ubiquitous. Their commercials ran on ESPN, CBS, Fox Sports, every TV station imaginable. Both companies took out advertising in and around stadiums. Pete Jennings won over two million bucks playing fantasy sports at DraftKings.com. He's off living the high life. You'd right see a now, DraftKings or FanDuel sponsored segment on SportsCenter. Then, during the segment, a player might walk by a DraftKings or FanDuel sponsored sign during a highlight. Then, SportsCenter would go to commercial, and you'd see multiple DraftKings or FanDuel ads, all stocked with men in their late 20s or 30s who just won not thousands, but millions playing fantasy sports. FanDuel has definitely changed my Sundays. It's made it a lot more interesting. FanDuel's one-week fantasy football leagues are paying $75 million a week with immediate cash It was no creepy, weird, and inescapable. And if you felt that way about the ads, you weren't alone. DraftKings and FanDuel went from tiny startups to billion-dollar corporations in a matter of just a few years. They took in hundreds of millions of dollars in investment from some of the biggest names, not only in sports, but in business. We're talking Google, Comcast, Fox, even two NFL owners, all invested in the two startups. After that, both companies just needed everyone playing to believe they could win. They spent $750 million on ads in 2015 alone. Everyone saw them, including the Attorney General of New York State, Eric Schneiderman, whose office became very interested in the legal question of whether these were games of skill or games of chance. FanDuel and DraftKings were gambling on everyone believing they were not gambling sites. And in 2015, they lost that bet. From SB Nation and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is It Seems Smart at the Time. I'm Spencer Hall, and today we trace the sudden rise, spectacular fall, and uncertain future of daily fantasy sports. Don Van Natta is an investigative reporter for ESPN. He covered the DraftKings FanDuel case for the network. He's a veteran reporter who's done heavy stories, presidential elections, the Clinton impeachment, the Judith Miller case. Political intrigue is his wheelhouse. One common thread between the DraftKings FanDuel story and his other work? This all starts in Washington, D.C., and it runs right through the interests of the NFL. The Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act of 2006 was an attempt to curb rampant online gambling in the United States. The legislation effectively banned most forms of online gambling. Van Natta says it did, however, have a trapdoor. Online fantasy games for all sports were explicitly allowed to continue operation. The loophole was created for the season-long games that everybody was playing, and the leagues themselves were behind this loophole because, of course, those season-long fantasy games that people were playing in football, for instance, you know, helped turbocharge interest in the NFL. Full confession here before we go any further. I hate fantasy sports. I don't understand why anyone would play them, and I'm terrible at them. They're too close to actual work. I have to keep track of things. I have to file things. I have to look at a calendar and know what's going to happen next week. But I can understand the appeal on an intellectual level. It's a good way to interact with your friends. It's an easy thing to do online. And you can do it for relatively low stakes. Even if you don't get it on a personal level, which I certainly don't, you can at least get it on the theoretical level of why people would enjoy it. Nigel Eccles wasn't a fantasy person either. 
But he and a few of his co-workers at a British internet news startup read the legislation. They recognized an opportunity when they saw one. The opportunity they recognized in that loophole? It's the one I mentioned in the 2006 Online Gambling Act. Fanata says they figured out the loophole could be extended to cover daily fantasy sports. And they could make the argument that the loophole made it legal for you to literally wager on a team that you assemble in the afternoon and then watch the games that night and they get paid the next day. Daily fantasy wasn't really a huge thing at the time, but that didn't matter. It became an asset in DraftKings and FanDuel's pitches to investors. Instead of waiting months and months for a payoff to a fantasy game, players could see returns nightly. Cash flow in standard fantasy games moved slowly and at a trickle. Open daily fantasy? All but guaranteed a churn, rivaling that of a casino. Van Natta says daily fantasy was also the solution to a problem casinos have been trying to solve for years. How to capture an elusive demographic that barely gambles at all. This was an opportunity to allow millennials who some people will argue have short attention spans, are used to watching televised sports with a second screen in front of them, and to give them a product that literally is invented for them. And that is to wager and have action on a given night in a country that has basically no legalized sports wagering except Las Vegas. They didn't even have to leave the couch. Daily Fantasy was right there on their phones. It was a solid pitch for investors. There were two key issues, though. The first, DraftKings and FanDuel couldn't do this with a small or even mid-sized number of users playing. They needed volume. The way these companies make money is through a rake or a percentage of all the wagering. So the more people that you can get to sign up uh, at wagering that money on these daily fantasy contests, the more money they're going to make on their 6 to 15% rake that they were taking off the top of all of the betting handle. It's an open secret that the sportsbook is actually one of the least profitable pieces of a casino's overall operations. A theoretical daily fantasy operation, working a lot like a casino legally, propose making the whole business out of just that part. If the margins were low, then a daily fantasy operation would need a huge number of users. It's a volume business and you need a lot of volume. It's actually a pretty uh, thin margin business as well. So both DraftKings and FanDuel figured out that they needed millions of users uh, to keep coming back every single day and betting more and more for them to be able to sustain any kind of profit and to get the attention, quite frankly, uh, of Wall Street. Because the entire play here was for these two companies to eventually go public and for there to be life-changing money through an IPO. The second question was harder how to keep this legal. The defense from the start was that these would be games of skill, not chance. Players won based on what they knew about the sport, not because of the roll of the ball in a roulette table or the draw of a card. Not only would they be games of skill, but they would be fairly administered. And if everyone had the same information and the same access to that information, then what could go wrong? Initially, investors were skeptical. FanDuel went first, taking $1.2 million in venture capital in 2009. DraftKings came next. Running out of one of the founders' homes, their first contest on the opening day of baseball season paid out just $400, mostly to family and friends. The sums didn't matter. Vanetta says both companies began rolling up users for daily fantasy contests. 
investors signed up quickly, including actual sports leagues. Major League Baseball and the NBA were both sort of early seed investors that took a percentage of these two companies um, in exchange for the companies themselves being sort of the official daily fantasy provider of Major League Baseball or of the NBA. MLB invested directly in DraftKings in 2013. FanDuel signed a partnership deal with the NBA in 2014. The NFL stayed away. Historically, the league wants nothing to do with gambling, so much so that it prohibits its owners from betting on games or owning controlling stakes in casinos. Yet daily fantasy as a business was so attractive that two NFL owners invested directly in DraftKings, Jerry Jones of the Dallas Cowboys and Robert Kraft of the New England Patriots. Which is kind of remarkable when you consider at the time the commissioner of the NFL, Roger Goodell, was still talking about the evils of gambling and how the integrity of the NFL had to be protected against gambling. The frenzy to invest went past sports. Google's capital division invested in FanDuel. So did Comcast. Fox led a $300 million round of investment. Disney nearly put $250 million into DraftKings before backing out, citing conflicts of interest. It wasn't just the biggest companies in America betting on fantasy sports. The biggest companies in the world were betting on fantasy sports. They needed people to keep playing. If they wanted people to keep playing, they needed people to think they could win. And if they wanted people to think they could win, they needed to keep a lid on Daily Fantasy's dirty secret. The chances of winning for most players were effectively zero. The fantasy sports business had a serious problem. The winnings on the commercials? ESPN's Don Van Natta says they were real, but paid out mostly to a tiny sliver of dominant players. Most of whom wagered more than a million dollars in a year. Very, very savvy, very smart. That small fraction of daily fantasy players dominated the opposition using a combination of data analysis, technology, and old-fashioned predation. A lot of these people were accounting majors, statistics majors, analytics experts. They had all sorts of technological advantages where they were able to go on these sites, scrape the sites for data, find the players that were there that were the novices, that were the frequent losers, and literally target them. Vanetta says the flocks of new users never stood a chance, especially when they were frequently targeted by veterans looking for easy marks. New users entering Daily Fantasy Play might enter one or two lineups a day, each backed by a very limited payroll. They face players like Sahil Sud. Sud sat in his apartment and wagered up to 100 grand a day on sites like DraftKings and FanDuel, using algorithms he built himself to enter hundreds of matches with the best possible lineups. He had scripts that were able to sort of uh, look at both DraftKings and FanDuel and find the novice players, the frequently losing players, and target them for either heads-up games or other types of contests. Sud also had a bigger bankroll than other players. Where other players could only enter 10 or 20 contests, Van Atta found that Sud could enter hundreds, if not thousands, of lineups at a time. If he's got a thousand lineups, that gives him a big advantage over somebody who only has one or two or even 20. He would do that often. Per a 2015 profile, Sud claims to have made $3 million on Daily Fantasy, with a steady 10 to 15% return on his play. Banata says the flocks of new users never stood a chance, especially when they were frequently targeted by veterans looking for easy marks. There was predatory behavior, and so yes, there was only a tiny percentage of regular players that were winners, and even, quite frankly, some of the high-volume players were losers as well. It was called bum hunting. 
and Van Natta experienced it firsthand. I put $100 on FanDuel, and I put in a lineup for NBA action. I think there were seven games, and six seconds after I put my lineup down, a guy named Condia grabbed the game, and I had no idea who Condia was, and I looked it up on Roto Grinders and found out Condia was the number one daily fantasy NBA player in America. The lobbies were full of casual players who didn't stand a chance against sharks like Candia, users who, unlike Van Natta, were playing for small stakes. Of course, he beat me. He crushed me, I think, by 80 points or something like that and took my, I think it was $50 he won from me in a blink of an eye. That was commonplace. Bum hunting only made sense for big players. Wolves don't eat other wolves. They eat sheep because sheep are plentiful, easy to catch, and in the case of DraftKings and FanDuel at the time, completely unprotected. It was too easy. I talked to him later about it, and he sort of laughed weakly, and he said, yeah, you know, I found you, you know, in the lobby. I saw you were a novice player. Why, why wouldn't I go after, uh, you know, some free money? You were just free money sitting there. And it really illustrated the way these top sharks were able to eat up, you know, little helpless minnows like me. DraftKings and FanDuel were new companies facing an old problem. How to keep losers playing the game. Now, casinos already have an answer for this. They give you free stuff. If you're down 10 grand at a blackjack table, no problem. There's a free breakfast and a suite waiting for you upstairs. Tickets to Cirque du Soleil, they make losing a mortgage payment at Roulette go down a little easier. They give you freebies, incentives, rewards programs, memberships. Casinos have all kinds of little ways to keep everyone happy and keep tabs on you, uh, to bring you back no matter what happened, to keep you coming back. Perversely, DraftKings and FanDuel did the opposite. Somewhat preposterously, these two companies lavish perks only on the high-volume winners. The losers that you referenced, the sort of whales that come to Vegas and drop 5 or $6 million in a weekend, the losers in daily fantasy sports, they didn't get any perks. Van Natta says both companies dropped tons of cash on these promos, paying celebrities for access and then promoting the events. They didn't just want the winners to know that they alone were special. They wanted everyone else to see them saying that too. It was only the winners and the high-volume players that were treated to the Tiger Jam VIP experience in Las Vegas where they were able to rub shoulders with Tiger Woods in the poker room at the MGM Grand and at the Shadow Creek Golf Course. There were private parties for VIPs at the Live Nightclub in Miami Beach. They would you know, go to football games and sit in the luxury boxes. In a new Gilded Age, the guys running an internet boomtown saw a great inequality between winners and losers and decided to give more to the winners. In the eyes of those in the established gaming industry, it was nonsense. I talked to a number of people saying this was really stupid that you were giving these junkets to your high liquidity players who generally win. Steve Wynn would have never done this. You've got to give these perks to the high liquidity losers. And the industry just never did that. Misunderstanding a basic relationship between winners, losers, and the companies was a warning sign. DraftKings and FanDuel blew through a few of those. The biggest danger to the billions of dollars tied up in daily fantasy continued to be the law. DraftKings and FanDuel existed because of a tiny legal loophole. That opening could close in a hurry if DraftKings and FanDuel attracted the wrong kind of scrutiny. 
Paul Charchia, the head of the Fantasy Sports Trade Association, said as much in a speech to a crowd of daily fantasy execs at their convention in Las Vegas in January of 2013. Don't emphasize winnings. In particular, don't emphasize big winnings. Don't use gambling terms. In his words, don't fuck this up. We'll let Paul himself expand on that a bit. Well, at the time, what I meant was don't be reckless. And I wanted to make sure that the line didn't become blurred between fantasy and gambling and that people wouldn't automatically draw the conclusion that fantasy sports was gambling. Paul warned everyone, but he's also kind of a dissenter here. He believes daily fantasy sports are a game of skill, even if they involve money and less social competition. This is not like pulling a slot machine a handle or scratching off a lottery ticket that we've always felt that fantasy sports was a game of skill. And we wanted them to always keep in mind the, the full impact of the, the entire industry and not just the daily fantasy sector of fantasy sports. Still, he warned them. But FanDuel and DraftKings went ahead anyway, starting a gigantic advertising war with each other that eclipsed anything else in the market. The spending attracted everyone's attention, including one very interested state attorney general. On October 5, 2015, the New York Times published a piece entitled Scandal Erupts in Unregulated World of Fantasy Sports. It detailed how Ethan Haskell, an employee of DraftKings, won $300,000 in a FanDuel contest using internal information released early from DraftKings' own servers. That information about the most frequently drafted players usually didn't become public until after contests. Haskell would have had an advantage with that information, one other players didn't have. The Times article came right out and called it insider trading. Haskell would later be acquitted of any wrongdoing in the case. An outside law firm found the release of data was inadvertent, though the review never explained exactly why Haskell had the information in the first place. Haskell was not the only employee playing daily fantasy sports. Follow-ups to the Haskell story found that both companies knew their employees were competing in daily fantasy, often with proprietary data available only to them. Fanata found that both companies warned their employees in internal memos not to do too well lest they attract attention. Those memos came out three years prior to Haskell all the way back in 2012. They said things like, Minimize internal flow of exploitable information where possible so that there are fewer opportunities for exploitation. And players who swamp big tournaments with entries frequently become targets of accusations. It literally raised questions of whether, if you're an employee of one site, can you take inside information that you're getting uh, at your company and going to a rival site and winning money. And so that was a very bad headline uh, for both companies because it, it raised legitimate questions of whether the games themselves were rigged. As a group, most of them knew little about Daily Fantasy. They did all know the ads, though. For research purposes only, they played Daily Fantasy on both FanDuel and DraftKings in their offices. The AG came to a conclusion Pat Charchian and others had warned them about, that these were games of chance, not skill, and that the advertising for both companies was misleading at best. Eric Schneiderman came in um, not long after the Haskell allegations were made public, uh, and he came in and said that these are not games of skill, which both companies had insisted uh, that they were, and not games of chance. Schneiderman flatly said, no, these are games of chance, this is gambling, and threatened to shut them down, and basically sent them a cease and desist letter.
On November 10, 2015, the New York Attorney General's Office delivered letters to FanDuel and DraftKings demanding that they stop taking illegal wagers in the state of New York. The emphasis on cash prizes Paul Charchin warned them about back in 2013? It's right there in the New York Attorney General's cease and desist letter, their own ad copy thrown back at them as evidence. Further, DraftKings has promoted and continues to promote DFS like a lottery, representing the game to New Yorkers as a path to easy riches that anyone can win. The DraftKings ads promise, it's the simplest way of winning life-changing piles of cash. The giant check is no myth, become a millionaire, and similar enticements. You might assume that the companies would have prepared for a moment when someone might call them on their bluff and try to shut them down. That was a very dark day uh, for both companies. But, you know, remarkably, there were employees, including the CEO of FanDuel, who told me they never saw this coming. Uh, this, was, this took them by complete surprise. They hadn't prepared at all. Despite years of warnings, the heads of the daily fantasy industry's two biggest companies were completely blindsided by the letters. On the same day, ESPN and its parent company, Disney, pulled their $250 million deal with DraftKings off the table. The wild west of daily fantasy sports was over. FanDuel and DraftKings didn't stay in shock for long. They hired lawyers, lobbyists. The lobbyists took the fight to keep daily fantasy open for business state by state. The lawyers fought off a pile of lawsuits. 80 class action lawsuits regarding the insider trading accusations alone. All unsettled as of October of 2018. The legal bills got so expensive, Van Atta says, the two companies considered the unthinkable. They had had merger talks. Nigel Eccles, the CEO of FanDuel, and Jason Robbins, the CEO of DraftKings, as early as 2015. They didn't make it happen, though they came close in 2017 before the whole thing fell apart. Merger talks should have made it obvious how much the two companies needed to cooperate in order to survive. Instead, it showed something else entirely. It really revealed that these two companies could have actually saved a lot of money, saved a lot of their investors' money, and joined forces in the same way that Sirius and XM did in the satellite radio space and and other companies do to save money. Each still wanted, and presumably still wants, to put the other into the ground. They've won some battles in that fight, including a shocking one. In August 2016, after some heavy legal wrangling, the state of New York permitted residents to play daily fantasy again. It's different now, though, regulated even. There are limits to the number of entries one player can make and limits to the use of automated scripts in competition. There are different levels of competition now, with high-volume players kept somewhat away from inexperienced ones. The money is still there, but looking at the ads, it's hard to tell. The first big number on DraftKings isn't a single jackpot. It's the number 750,000, as in the number of people DraftKings claims won money in their first tournament. See? Everyone can win now. Today, that market saturation is gone, but the advertisements are still around. Maybe a little subtler now, but still there. The $2 billion valuations and limitless profit projections for daily fantasy, they're gone for good. They might not have been real all along. I always think there was wild valuation estimates. Um, I also think that they, in some of their estimates of how much wagering was going on, you know, there was no way of knowing. You had to believe what the company said. There were certainly some reporters that covered the industry that believed it. I was always looking at it more dubious, through a more dubious lens, because uh, I knew it was a thin margin business. And from talking to people for the piece that I did, it was clear that they were not profitable 
even in 2015, at the sort of height of the popularity of daily fantasy sports. The hundreds of millions? It all went to create elaborate placeholders for legal sports betting in the United States. It gathered names and email addresses and financial information and data. Just a massive hoovering up of information on active fantasy players who would hopefully one day be potential gambling clients. When, not if, it was legalized in the United States. Eventually, it would get to the Supreme Court, this question, as it did, and in May, as we all saw, uh, the Supreme Court in, uh, in, in the New Jersey case led by then-Governor Christie uh, has you know, opened the floodgates to legalize sports wagering across the country, and not surprisingly, we now see you know, a FanDuel sports book. I mean, this is the space that they were always set up to operate in, and they have a huge database of millions of daily fantasy players who are presumably really eager and would much rather be betting on games and over-unders than assembling lineups uh, to try to win a contest of a million dollars against uh, sharks like Sud. In the year of our Lord, 2018, amid headlines about Facebook and Google and where your information's going, it shouldn't be surprising that a company purporting to sell a service turned out to be just in it for the data. They were pretty obvious about it. By the way, in 2016, when I did my piece, I had lobbyists for the companies who were working for the companies and executives and former executives pretty openly saying that, yes, this is a long-term play for sports wagering. And so that huge fight that we saw that we were all so sick of in the fall of 2015 with all those television commercials were really about you know trying to knock out the other guy so we will be the only people standing, the only company that will be there when all the dollars flow for sports wagering. To get there in the first place, they needed a weak point. DraftKings and FanDuel did what a lot of companies do in the internet era. They found something social, they sped it up and flattened it, making it accessible to everyone at once and also effectively making it for everyone and no one at the same time. They took something quaint and slow and then they turned it into a monster. And legal sports betting is already here, sort of. In May of 2018, the Supreme Court ruled that a 1992 law banning commercial sports betting in most states was unconstitutional. Congress might step in later, but for the moment, it's up to the states. Vanetta says it is on the way, but not at the pace some imagined. It's going to be a slow process of you know, three to five years before we'll even see a majority of states in the United States open sports books where you can go and, and bet on a game. It's going to be a slow process. These state legislatures, again, have all these competing interests where there are other deeply entrenched gambling interests against having somebody try to cut in on the action. FanDuel and DraftKings both operate in New Jersey. FanDuel has an actual brick-and-mortar location. DraftKings is mobile only. New Jersey is it for now. This all seems familiar. As in, beyond sports and games kind of familiar. The internet brought people together. It gave them games. Then it told them they'd be winners. Big winners. That almost feels a little too easy, but it's where I end up here. Then no one won, and behind the facade there was nothing but another casino, where the house always wins, and where even the usual comforts provided to keep losers playing were taken away, and then somehow proudly given to the people who'd already won. 
We ended up with something that already existed in the first place, but now bigger, less personal, stingier, and operated at a distance by algorithms written by people who never intended any of this to benefit you. For the record, a final counterpoint to all this cynicism, Paul Charchin, the guy who warned fantasy sports companies about being confused for gambling. He does think the optics, in the end, were bad for the industry. I don't know. I can't say with any certainty that it did, but it gave the impression that the expert players were at a stronger advantage and the you know quasi-professional players were at a stronger advantage. So I know at least optically it didn't feel right to a lot of people, but whether or not it provided an actual material advantage to me, I don't, I don't have any data to back that up. But Charchian's not wrong about the optimism, at least for the companies. Even after this mess, both companies are still solvent, open for business. He thinks the future's still bright. That will just make new bets in new ways on new things. People always point to the European model, which is really like traditional Vegas-style betting. But American culture wasn't raised on that. Primarily, we've grown up on fantasy. We've grown up on fantasy is a good place to end it. A little too on the nose, but sometimes that's how the story really ends. Jonathan Hirsch is our show's producer. Research, editing, and script support by Holly Anderson. Nishat Kurwa is Vox Media's executive producer of audio. Thanks also to Elena Bergeron and Jen Holmes. I'm Spencer Hall, and I'll see you soon.